Good morning. Thank you for coming out on this lovely day, part of the heat wave that we have at the moment. Um, and for that, I apologise because I've got my quite pasty white legs out this morning, but the heat demanded it. So today we begin a new series as part of our year of biblical literacy, or Yobel. And uh, the basic idea is this, that in an age where people read less, no longer really read books, let alone the Bible, we want to take a whole year when we rediscover the joy of becoming biblically literate. Now, over the course of this year, our hope and our prayer is that each of us would read the Bible for ourselves and in the process discover a whole new relationship with this book we often call the Word of God. So we've just finished a series looking at some of the wisdom books. We've, we've looked at Job and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And, and today we're going to start a whole new four-week series on the book of Esther called The Work of God. My intent this morning is to give you an overview of Esther so that you're ready for the coming three weeks, but also to challenge some of the views that some of you may have on the book of Esther. So buckle up. First, let me state that Esther is one of my favorite books of the Old Testament. And my wife, Esther, didn't make me say that, just to make it clear. Esther is this rich, amazing narrative. It's a classic story of heroes and heroines or villains. It's the addition of some comedy characters. It's both shocking and inspiring. It has intrigue and comedy moments. It's just a great story. Esther is also a beloved book of the Jews. Jewish rabbis throughout history have said that two portions of Scripture would never cease to be relevant to humanity and would last until eternity. Those are the Torah, which are the first five books of the Old Testament, and the book of Esther. So truly a very loved book of the Jews. The book of, having said that, though, the book of Esther is not without its detractors. It's not without those people who criticize it, and that's for a number of reasons. Some people have issue with whether Esther is actually historical fact or fiction. Now, you know me, I'm a theology geek, but I'm also a little bit of a history geek, and I would love to take you through the book of Esther pointing out all the historical accuracies that are backed up by external historical sources and also by the archaeology. But I can see your eyes are already starting to glaze over and you're starting to fall asleep, so maybe I'll just skip that today. And it's also true that there are a number of inconsistencies in the book of Esther. Um, this has led some people to believe that actually it's an amalgamation of or joining together of a couple of originally separate narratives or stories. If it is of any interest to you, then my stance on Esther is that it's a historical novel with a strong core of historical truth and fact with a layering of legendary and fictional elements. If you're truly interested to know more, then catch me afterwards, and I'm sure we'll have a great discussion about it. But having said that, to some extent, whether you believe that the book of Esther is historical fact or fiction, it's kind of irrelevant to what I believe is the intent of the book. But more on that in a moment. Another reason why some take issue with Esther 
is that despite it being a book of the Bible, it does not mention God once. Not a single time. No one in the book of Esther even alludes to or refers to God. No one even prays a prayer in this book. And it's for that reason that Martin Luther, the father of the Christian Protestant Reformation, considered excluding Esther from the canon of the Bible. Or, in other words, he considered moving the book of Esther from a ca- to a category of books, so good books to read, as opposed to them being considered holy scripture, considered to be on par with the rest of the books in the Bible. In the end, though, he agreed that it should remain in canon, despite it not mentioning God. Perhaps we should consider, though, that the fact that God is not mentioned in Esther is actually intentional. Tim Mackey, co-creator of the Bible Project and Bible Nerd, says that the reason that the anonymous author of Esther does not mention God at all is because it is an invitation to read this story looking for God's activity, and there are signs of it everywhere. The story is full of very odd coincidences and ironic reversals, and it all forces you to see God's purpose at work but behind the scenes. For me, this is the main reason why I love the book of Esther. That Esther is a book that tells the story of God at work in people, despite the fact that those people do not appear to be the paragon or shining examples of purity or worthiness. That despite all their flaws, God still does an amazing work in people. And that is, conveniently, the title of today's talk, A Work in People. Before we look in more detail at this work that God is doing in people, I think it would be a really good idea to get an overview of the entire book of Esther. And so rather than me going through it all myself, and I know it will come as a surprise to some of you who have heard me speak, to speak before, I'm going to play a video. The video I'm going to play is actually from uh, the Read Scripture set of videos by The Bible Project. And, and if you're not familiar with The Bible Project, then you, they really have got a bunch of great summary videos of all of the books of the Bible. And if you're following along with us using the Read Scripture app as part of the uh, biblical literacy, then you will know just how helpful these videos are. So with that said, nice and loud please, and we'll play the video. The book of Esther, it's one of the more exciting and curious books in the Bible. The story is set over 100 years after the Babylonian exile of the Israelites from their land. And while some Jews did return to Jerusalem, remember Ezra and Nehemiah, many did not. And so the book of Esther is about a Jewish community living in Susa, the capital city of the ancient Persian Empire. The main characters in this story are two Jews, Mordecai and then his niece Esther. And then there's the king of Persia, who's something of a drunken pushover in this story. And then there's the Persian official Haman, the cunning villain. Now this is a curious book in the Bible, mainly for the fact that God is never even mentioned, not once. Which might strike you as kind of odd. I mean, isn't the Bible about God? 
But this is a brilliant technique by the author, who's anonymous, by the way. It's an invitation to read this story looking for God's activity, and there are signs of it everywhere. The story is full of very odd, quote, coincidences and ironic reversals, and it all forces you to see God's purpose at work, but behind the scenes. Let's just dive into the story. The book opens with the king of Persia throwing two elaborate banquet feasts that last a total of 187 days, and it's all for the grandiose purpose of displaying his greatness and splendor. On the last day of the banquet feast, he's really drunk, and he demands that his wife, Queen Vashti, appear at the party to show off her beauty. She refuses, and so in a drunken rage, the king deposes Vashti and makes the silly decree that all Persian men should now be the masters of their own homes. Then he holds a beauty pageant because he wants to find a new queen. This is like a really bad soap opera. But it's right here that we're introduced to Esther and Mordecai. Esther hides her Jewish identity and enters the beauty pageant and wins. And the king is so obsessed with Esther that he elevates her to become the new queen of Persia. Now after this, and even more serendipitous, is the fact that Mordecai just happens to overhear two royal guards plotting to murder the king. And so he informs Esther, who in turn informs the king, and Mordecai gets credit for saving the king's life. Now, right here from the beginning, God's not mentioned anywhere, but this all seems providentially ordered. What is it that God's up to? You have to keep reading. We're next introduced to Haman, who's not actually a Persian. He's called an Agagite. He's a descendant of the ancient Canaanites. Remember for Samuel chapter 15. The king elevates Haman to the highest position in the kingdom, and he demands that everybody kneel before Haman. Well, when Mordecai sees Haman, he refuses to kneel, which of course fills Haman with rage. And when he finds out that Mordecai's Jewish, Haman successfully persuades the king to enact this crazy decree to destroy all of the Jewish people. And to decide the date of the Jews' annihilation, Haman rolls the dice. A die is called pur in Hebrew. Tuck that away for later. Eleven months later, on the 13th of Adar, all the Jews will die. Haman and the king then have a drinking banquet to celebrate their really horrible decision. So the focus now turns to Mordecai and Esther, who are the only hope for the Jewish people. They make a plan that Esther is going to reveal her Jewish identity to the king and ask him to reverse the decree. But approaching the king without a royal request is, according to Persian law, an act worthy of death. So in a key statement, Mordecai, he's confident that even if Esther remains silent, that deliverance for the Jews will arrive from another place. And then Mordecai wonders aloud. He says, who knows? Maybe you've become queen for this very moment. Esther responds with bravery, and she purposes to go to the king with her amazing words, if I perish, I perish. Now, in what unfolds, we watch the ironic reversal of all of Haman's evil plans. So Esther hosts the king and Haman at a first banquet, and she says that she wants to make a special request of both of them at an exclusive banquet the following day. So Haman leaves the banquet totally drunk, and he sees Mordecai in the street. He fumes with anger, and he orders that a tall stake be built so that Mordecai can be impaled upon it in the morning. It seems like things can't get any worse for the Jews and for Mordecai. But all of a sudden, the story pivots. It just so happens that night, 
the king, he can't sleep. And he has the royal chronicles read to him for good bedtime reading. And he just happens to hear about how Mordecai had saved the king's life. He had totally forgotten. So in the morning, Haman enters to request Mordecai's execution. And the king in that moment orders Haman to honor Mordecai publicly for saving his life. So now Haman has to lead Mordecai around the city on a royal horse, telling everyone to praise him. Now this moment in the story, it's a pivot for the whole book. It begins Haman's downfall and Mordecai's rise to power. Watch how this works. The day after is Esther's second banquet. So the king and Haman arrive, and Esther informs the king that first of all she's Jewish, and second that Haman has enacted a decree to murder her and to murder Mordecai, who saved his life, and to murder all of the Jews. Now the king's had a lot to drink, so when he hears this news, he goes into yet one more drunken rage, and he orders that Haman be impaled on the very stake he made for Mordecai. It's ironic and a grisly way for Haman to go. Haman's execution, however, doesn't solve the problem of the decree to kill all of the Jews. So the focus now turns to Esther and Mordecai as they make a plan to reverse the decree. They discover that the king can't revoke a decree that he's already made. So instead, the king commissions Mordecai to issue a counter-decree. On the appointed day that all of the Jews were supposed to be killed, the 13th of Adar, now the Jews are ordered to defend themselves and to destroy any who plotted to kill them. Then Mordecai, Esther, and Jews everywhere hold banquets and feasts to celebrate this new decree, and Mordecai is elevated to a seat beside the king. Eventually, the decreed day comes, and the Jews triumph over their enemies. First, they destroy Haman's family, and then any other Persian officials who had joined in Haman's plot. And then on a second day, they get permission to destroy any who plotted against them throughout the entire kingdom. This results in joy and celebration as the Jews are rescued from annihilation. The story then tells about how Esther and Mordecai established by decree this annual two-day feast of Purim to commemorate their deliverance from destruction. And the name of the feast comes from Haman's dice. Remember, Purim. The book concludes with a short epilogue as Mordecai is elevated to second in command in the kingdom and we are told now of his royal greatness and splendor as the Jews thrive in exile. There we go. That's my talk done. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> I really do love those Bible Project videos. And if you are unfamiliar with them, then it really is worth your time. Check them out on the Bible Project YouTube video channel or uh, at thebibleproject.org. Okay, so today I'm going to be saying some things about Esther that for some will be a little bit controversial. I'm warning you up front mainly so you can get your rotten fruit ready to throw at me. But seriously, if anything I say upsets you, then I'd be more than happy to meet with you afterwards and explain why I am right and you are wrong. <laughs> seriously, I am happy to discuss any of this and debate at the different views that we have. One, I really love this kind of stuff. And, and to be honest, I love that we are as a community free to have different opinions. But just to be clear... I'm right. So some of you will have grown up listening to the story of Esther in Sunday school classes, or maybe even watched some of the dramatic retellings of Esther in, in video and media. And the retelling usually goes a little like this. Esther was a simple Jewish girl who God used to save the Jews from destruction. That God put her in the right place at the right time 
and that because she had courage and listened to God and obeyed God, then she was able to stop the evil plans of Haman and the destruction of the Jews. And that's a great story. And there have been many talks and sermons based upon Esther's character of being courageous and obedient to God. How she was a great example of no matter what your initial circumstances, God can raise you up to do great things for him. All good stuff. The only problem is that's not what the book of Esther is about. That story is not the story that's presented in the book of Esther. The problem is that actually neither Esther or Mordecai, her guardian cousin, were great examples of godly or pious character. Actually, they were the opposite. We already know that God is not mentioned by name in the book of Esther. And when when we look at the main characters in the book, Esther and Mordecai, we see that they seem to have no reverence and no obedience towards God's laws at all. They compromise in every way possible in their circumstances. Let's look at just one example of many in the first two chapters. The king of Persia, after partying hard for a long time, 180 days, now that's a party, with his drunk mates, demands that his queen, Queen Vashti, come and display herself in front of them. To which request she outright refuses. I wonder why she wasn't keen to do that. I mean, who wouldn't want to display themselves in front of a bunch of drunk guys? How unreasonable of her. Not. Of course she said no. So the king, embarrassed by her refusal, deposes the queen, sends out an edict demanding all women respect their husbands and making it clear that every man should be the ruler over his own household. What a bunch of wusses. Seriously, no insecure men there then. And then the king begins to search for a replacement queen by having this massive year-long beauty contest. So Esther signs up for that and proceeds to go through the various rounds until she is selected as queen. And we can read this in Esther 2, verses 15 to 17. Now, this is a good point for you to bring your Bibles out and, and, and look at your Bibles if you have them with you. If you don't, then we will have the words up on the screen. So Esther 2, 15 to 17 goes like this. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now, the king was attracted to Esther more than than to any other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Now, I don't have time to go into detail, but trust me when I say that over the course of the first two chapters alone, 
Esther breaks many Jewish laws and customs in the process of becoming queen. I mean, for starters, how do you think she won the king's favor? It wasn't by just looking pretty. I leave that thought with you for now. Ironically, though, Queen Vashti, who is often used as this disobedient character opposite the obedient Esther, in many talks about Esther nowadays, could be considered more virtuous, more modest, and of greater moral character than Esther. And that is actually, I believe, intentional. During the first two chapters of Esther, it can be shown that the Jews in exile had fallen far away from God, that they had been fully assimilated into the culture of Persia, so that they had forgotten God and everything that he had done for the Israelites. That both Esther and Mordecai, far from being these paragons of faith and virtue, are actually like the rest of the Israelites, totally unfaithful to God and their covenant with him. The post-exile Jews and Christians had a real issue with this secular story, so being in Scripture, so, so much so that the Greek and Aramaic versions of the Hebrew Scriptures had a number of significant additions added to the story of Esther to make it appear more religious. Now, although these additions are no longer accepted as being canon and are not part of the book of Esther as we see it today, there is no doubt that the modern retellings of Esther try to add back in this religious tone to Esther. The theologian John Donne, who wrote about these additions, said, the way that the Greek and Aramaic translations of Esther transformed the Hebrew story, not to mention the way contemporary versions have done this, completely changes the original intentions. The general tenor of most films, cartoons, and novels on Esther follows the spirit of the expansive Greek and Aramaic text instead of the Hebrew. By adding religious imagery and Jewish customs to the Hebrew version of Esther in any capacity, whether it is in a popular retelling, a commentary, a pastor's sermon, or a Sunday school lesson, the intuition and trajectory of the ancient translators are being followed. Sadly, I do not have time to point out all the ways in which Esther compromised and the Israelites abandoned the covenant they had with God. But if you are interested in a very good book and study on this matter and on this topic, then I highly recommend Esther and her elusive God. If we could click. If we could click. Thank you. Esther and her elusive God, how a secular story functions as scripture by John Anthony Dunn. No rotten fruit yet? Good. So, if we accept that the book of Esther appears to be a thoroughly secular book, with the main characters being unfaithful to both God and the covenant with God, then what is Esther all about? Why is it considered scripture? How does it fit into this overall narrative and story of God? And that last question is key. 
If we stop, to look, stop looking at the book of Esther in the isolation, then I would argue that we see the message of Esther is actually all about God and his faithfulness. So bear with me a few more minutes whilst we look at this. First, let me talk about Esther as a counterpoint to Job. A few weeks ago, Steve and Tammy both spoke about the book of Job and how the book of Job poses the question of why do bad things happen to good people? Now, the book of Job doesn't really answer the question, but in a similar way, the book of Esther poses the question, why do good things happen to undeserving people? Job's friends assume he must have done something wrong to warrant all the suffering that he was going through. And in a similar way, those who reflect on the book of Esther assume the reverse, that Esther must have done something right. After all, God saves the Jews through Esther and Mordecai. And they also both end up with a pretty good deal. She becomes the queen And Mordecai is promoted to being second only to the king of Persia. That is why many have looked for something in the characters of Esther and Mordecai to show that they are deserving of such good things. Despite it being clear that neither Esther or Mordecai do anything to deserve God working through them in such a way. They are utterly unfaithful to God. And that is the point. What if the book of Esther is not about our faithfulness, but God's faithfulness to his covenant and his promises? What if Esther is about God's faithfulness to his unfaithful people? I believe that Esther communicates the message that God is faithful to his promises. His promises to Abraham, for example, that he would bless the entire world through him. Genesis 12, 2-3 says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And despite the Israelites' unfaithfulness, God still preserved his people. He still stopped them from being destroyed. God upheld his holy name, his righteousness, and his faithfulness by delivering his unfaithful people. John Donne puts it this way. The perspective of this book, taken as a whole, is that Esther is a story about how God was faithful to an unfaithful people. God was responding despite the actions of his people, The absence of direct reference to God and religious customs in the narrative highlights this fact. God was not summoned or invoked through either prayer or repentance. He freely acted. This was entirely due to his faithfulness to his people, a unilateral, unconditional faithfulness to his covenant promises. To be clear, this salvation we're talking about the salvation of the Jews should not be equated to the saving work of Jesus Christ. 
God does not save those who are unrepentantly unfaithful. This is not about eternal salvation, but about God being faithful to his promises, whether we deserve it or not. I hope that after today, you will look at the book of Esther in a whole new light. And as my favorite theologian, N.T. Wright, said about John Donne's book, I'm sorry, I had to get an N.T. Wright quote in there somewhere. He said this, Christians have traditionally read the strange and powerful book of Esther by making it fit our ideas of how piety ought to work. John Anthony Dunn challenges us to do it the other way around, to allow the story to be itself, to expand our ideas of how God works in the world and through his people to include the story as it really is. The work of God through dysfunctional, ordinary, sinful, disobedient, messy people. I hope that you now look at the book of Esther as really, as really an encouragement, as I do, to know that God is always true to his word, that despite the fact that we individually or as the church continually show examples of unfaithfulness and messing up, that God continues to guide, direct, and do a work in people.